This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Kelly Bauer about her book, Negotiating Autonomy, Mapuche Territorial Demands, and Chilean Land Policy. This book was published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. The book complicates the conventional wisdom about technocratic politics in post-dictatorship Chile by examining the gap between discourse and practice in the country's indigenous land policy. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, of course. So so the quick introduction, I'm currently an assistant professor of political science at Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln and currently awarded tenure. So I'm super excited that title will change in, in August. Congratulations. Um, research, thank you. And my research and teaching broadly focuses on identity policy and rhetoric in South America. And I, I do have some side projects on political science pedagogy that I also get excited about. So currently my work has been on indigenous rights, irregular migration and human security. And most often I'm doing that in in the Chilean context. And obviously there's a lot to follow these days about current events in Chile. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, So uh, how did you come to write this book, Negotiating Autonomy? You know, I think like for a lot of people, it was the convergence of a lot of different events. Um, So I started doing my PhD at George Washington, really interested in conversations about democracy in Latin America. Um, I, you know, had spent a lot of time in undergrad doing that, spent a decent amount of time abroad. Um, And as soon as I got to, to, to the graduate program, I realized that kind of the way I was thinking about democracy in Latin America was different than what a lot of literature talked about. And so it kind of took a while for me to figure out how to articulate that and kind of what my my focus was. And specifically, I found a lot of conversations about democracy are really high level and really focused on elite politics. Um, You know, how do transitions happen and why does backsliding happen and how do we how do we end up with this number of, you know, a Freedom House score, for example. And what really caught my attention is what I was really interested in is why do some people have 
such within one country, such dramatically different experiences with democracy. So, you know, we get this one number of what is a country's level of democracy, but within that dramatic variation and inequality in how people kind of live out that level of democracy day to day. Um, so I that kind of motivated how I approached a lot of my research of, you know, getting these very local personal experiences with, with types of democracy. And I think the other thing that happened was as I was starting my, my PhD program, Mapuche politics in, in Southern Chile were, were very contentious. Um, so there was a, a Mapuche student in Temuco who or is where I ended up living and doing a lot of my field research who was killed by state forces in 2008, which is right when I started my PhD work. Another person was killed by the state in 2009. So kind of as I was starting to explore where specifically am I going to, to, to focus this interest of mine and kind of daily experiences with democracy, this was very much in the news. Um, and it all kind of converged um, in a wonderful class with, with Henry Hale on ethnic politics. And so that was kind of where I, I started to dive into the differences and kind of the gap between how Mapuche indigenous communities articulated their demands and the, the different ways that the Chilean government responded to those demands. So that led me to, to about a year and a half living in Temuco, which is eight hours south of, of Santiago in Chile, and it kind of looped back to my original question as I was there, because a lot of people would pretty regularly tell me that, especially Mapuche individuals, that their experiences in democracy were not that different than their experiences during the Pinochet dictatorship. And so that really caught my attention because, you know, a lot of times Chile, Chile is kind of held up as one of the examples of good governance, of good democracy in, in Latin America. And here were, you know, these people who had these experiences saying that dictatorship and democracy, their, their daily lives and their thinking about the government was, was somewhat similar. So that, you know, it, it's always nice as you kind of dive into the field to, to hear these stories that, that kind of confirm the, the necessity of diving into the, the research that you're doing. Um, so the book, as, as it kind of developed, really got into which rights are recognized by the state and then how do people exercise those rights? So obviously there's a gap most of the time between what rights are recognized and then how people, which people exercise those. Um, and it kind of pushes us, and I'm sure we'll kind of get here at the end of the conversation of how can we kind of rethink and reimagine which rights are recognized and then experienced by, by which people in which ways. So the book dives into this gap between how Mapuche indigenous communities are articulating their demands for territory and then the, the Chilean government's policy response. And so there's, you know, this one really specific policy that I use to kind of capture some of these dynamics about citizenship, about experiences with democracy, about rights protections and so on. So that is the, the quick history of diving into this. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm looking forward to really kind of getting into the details here. So I'm going to ask you to start with sort of the broader context. Um, so can you tell us about uh, sort of the, the history of indigenous demands and neoliberal reforms in Latin America? It kind of sets the stage for the analysis that you're doing in the book. Yeah, of course. So this also kind of dives back into a, a an element of grad school. Um, so, you know, I started grad school in, in 2008 
And the literature has really changed since, but at the time, um, you know, there were some really interesting changes in indigenous politics, kind of late 90s, early 2000s in Latin America that kind of set the stage for the types of policies that, that I end up exploring in the Chilean context. Um, and a lot of those happened, you know, obviously Bolivia is a huge case here with the election of, of Evo Morales and a lot of the policy reforms that he implemented, the constitutional changes. Um, Ecuador is also a big case in, in the, the literature on indigenous politics for some of the mobilizing and the party structures that came out of, of indigenous communities' um, demands to the state. And the, the way that at the time, a lot of um, literature and political science was talking about this was in terms of successful mobilization. So why within a social movement conversation, so why do some demands turn into a social movement that becomes successful? And you know there are hard complications and conversations about what success looks like in that context. And then another kind of path that looked at um, kind of indigenous demands transitioning into party structures and success through kind of party structures and traditional institutional and electoral politics. Um, so a lot of really exciting changes in the region at the time. Um, and one conversation that really caught my attention that political scientists were kind of less focused on, um, a lot of um, international observers started to observe this what they were referring to as a, a brecha de implementación or an implementation gap between what rights were being recognized. And a lot of countries in Latin America had, had really exciting changes to the constitution, recognition of indigenous communities, recognition of, um, of prior consultation, of different sorts of territorial um, arrangements. So a lot of these policy reforms were happening um, but as people started to observe the impact, they, you know, there's this big gap between what, what is formally recognized and what communities and individuals are able to access. So the, the political science literature hadn't necessarily gone to that conversation um, as I was starting all this, but that, that, that gap between demand and access and policy implementation really caught my attention. So that's kind of what, what was happening um, within the region at the time. Chile is a bit interesting in that it, it has not gone through some of the reforms that other countries in the region has. So it's a bizarre case. Um, the, the policy that I end up focusing on stands out for being incredibly bureaucratic, kind of technical policies, very neoliberal in that, you know, a community has to go to the state and say, here is, land or territory that I lost at some point that used to be recognized, can we work through this policy process to return that? So while other countries in the regions kind of did these broader, often national level reforms to recognize particular indigenous rights, um, Chile did not do a lot of those national reforms and instead does kind of these very narrow, specific um, institutionalized policies, a kind of a, a piecemeal approach to, to indigenous politics and responding to some of those demands. So that's kind of where the literature was when, when I started and made me really excited to focus on this one policy. Um, you know, Chile is an interesting case. And we also, because it's such a piecemeal response that Chile, that Chile implemented, we have tons of subnational variation in which communities got access to which land through this policy. So kind of ripe to figure out what are what are some of the dynamics of how people are living through this, this policy. 
That's very helpful. Um, so I mentioned this briefly in my uh, intro, but part of what you're doing in this book is you're pushing back against uh, a conventional wisdom on governance in Chile. Um, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about this conventional wisdom or these these common narratives uh, about governance in Chile that that you want to complicate in this book? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, so Chile, and this has been very much in the news. Chile was in 1973 when when Pinochet came to power and later implemented a lot of neoliberal reforms. A lot of conversation in the literature talks about Chile being kind of the first and the fastest to implement these neoliberal reforms at a, at a national level. And I think what, and so a lot of our assumptions about Chile flow from um, the ways that that reshaped politics. And if we kind of dive in to what neoliberalism looks at, you know, we assume lots of privatization, we assume a small state, and we assume kind of um, these very technocratic types of governance where where kind of it's on citizens to figure out as individuals how to work through these specific specific policy measures. Um, and to be clear, I think it's really important to think that, that the neoliberal project in Chile and in other places was not just about a series of economic reforms, but a full rethinking of kind of how to do governance. So, you know, neoliberalism as a, a form of governance, a way of doing politics rather than kind of just one type of, of economic reforms. And certainly Chile did those economic uh, neoliberal reforms. But there were also neoliberal policy reforms and kind of a neoliberal approach to governance that kind of filtered down through the ways people experience citizenship. So how do you access part of the government or how do you work through this policy? Um, neoliberalism kind of pushed and, and shift, shifted the, the way a lot of people think about politics less in terms of groups and kind of organizing and mobilization and more in terms of really technocratic policy making. Um, so, you know, as I as I dove into how is this policy implemented in one way or why in some ways and not in other ways for different communities, the if you take the expectation that Chile is very neoliberal and technocratic, we expect kind of this transparent, specific type of policy implementation. And we get so much variation that, you know, there's something else happening. There's there's different types of governance that, that are being played out through this policy that are really important to dive into. So um, thank you for bringing that up. That was my next question. So you say that um, public policy um, is uh, at least when it comes to indigenous demands and land policy, right? That these policies are not the outcome of a dominant state, but rather the outcome of uh, contestation between indigenous demands and Chilean governance. And you refer to this as a quote unquote middle space. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think I thought a lot about how to articulate this. Um, I opened the book with this story of going to a march. Um, so while I was while I was living in Temuco, uh, there were a lot of um, Mapuche demands that were being advanced and a lot of conversations about how do we get these to the government. And um, certainly the I can the story in the book is better than I can articulate it here. But the basics are um, this really powerful group of Mapuche activists were organizing a march for a very cold day, as I remember. We got to the, you know, the starting point very early um, and kind of sat and waited. And I got really confused because this was 
you know, a very powerful established group of activists with a long history of really effective mobilization. And no one really showed up. <laughs> and I was incredibly confused. You know, I had kind of a, a good friend helping me, providing me input about who's going to show up when. And he was also confused, which which helped my confusion. And so as we kind of talked, as we left, you know, everything just kind of dispersed and nothing happened. What I came to piece together, and I scoured the internet later, um, what the, the government had done is they knew that this group was going to articulate these demands um, for self-determination and degrees of autonomy that day. And so what they did is took a lot of their policy mechanisms to you know, deliver resources or to respond to a land demand, and they were implemented that day. So while there was supposed to be this march, um, the government knew about it and sent kind of state representatives to different communities to deliver these resources. And of course, the, the leaders of those communities kind of host a little ceremony and, you know, receive the, the politician and, and talk about kind of those, those resources within the community. So all these communities and their leaders never came to this march. And so that's what I kind of tried to capture by, by this middle space. Um, you know, we, policy can be implemented according to procedures and according to, to particular um, requirements of what's documented when, but it doesn't necessarily tell us about when and why that is implemented at particular moments. So even if things are implemented according to procedures, there's still a lot of room kind of behind the scenes for activists and bureaucrats to determine when is this implemented and why that that never gets reported. Um, and so I tried in the book and through my interviews with a lot of bureaucrats and a lot of activists to try to understand, you know, why was this done in this way at this point, point in time? Yes, it followed the procedures, but why at that particular moment and what influenced that decision? Now, you mentioned uh, interviews, so I want to actually take a step back and ask you, what sort of research did you do for this book? I did a bunch of things. Um, so I am I'm pretty multi-method and interdisciplinary in my approach. And so I really tried to unpack what happens when a Mapuche community presents a claim to the state through this very institutionalized policy mechanism. Um, which ones are implemented when and why and how. Um, so just to give a tiny bit of background, there are about 3,000 Mapuche communities that have the paperwork, meaning at some point they had a document from the state saying this is your plot of land. And here I'm really intentionally not using the word territory for, for all sorts of reasons that I'd be happy to talk more about. Um, but about 3,000 communities have that paperwork. In the, the period of time that my book goes through, so 1994 to 2013, um, 435 purchases were made. Um, so that's a decent amount. It's about 3% of land in the region. Um, so my the methods were really driven to, to figure out from a bunch of perspectives, how do we get from 3,000 communities with this paperwork to go through this process to the number that actually did? Um, so I did, um, first of all, I did a lot of content analysis of the policy documents. So certainly policy documents are not the full story, um, but they do kind of lay out governing priorities and metrics and, you know, what, what check marks need to be checked off at certain points. So I analyzed kind of how the policy documents regulating this change over time. I did a lot of interviews with government officials. So the, the bureaucrats in these offices processing these paperwork and making decisions about 
how this is going to be run. Um, I also did a lot of interviews with community presidents to figure out how they navigated through this policy. Um, and then there, at the end, there's a quantitative analysis where I tried to kind of look at how generalizable are some of these trends that individual bureaucrats and community presidents were we're talking through. So I spent all that to say, I spent a lot of time kind of traipsing around um, parts of Timuco in, in some pretty cold and wet, wet weather. And the result is a really sophisticated book. Um, so uh, I, I think your empirics kind of start with tracing the evolution of indigenous land policies in Chile. Uh, focusing on the role of bureaucrats who write and rewrite these procedures and these regulations. So can you tell us about this process? Yeah, so the the policy starts in an interesting place. So the reason we get this policy is because of a lot of Mapuche mobilization and agreements at the end of the Pinochet dictatorship. So um, in the no campaign, um, that ended up electing President Alwyn to transition from Pinochet to the the first democratically elected government after the dictatorship. Mapuche communities had kind of negotiated a lot with that incoming government about what Mapuche demands would look like. Um, And one of the things that was at the top of the priority was this a a process to respond to territorial demands. So in, in this chapter, I kind of take and that was eventually passed in 1993 and then first implemented in 1994. Um, the first policy, as it's written, is incredibly broad and vague. And there's not a lot of details about how it would be implemented according to what procedures, how do you prioritize certain demands over others. And from a lot of the interviews, a lot of people that, that were part of this early process told me that they really didn't expect it to be in high demand. You know, they say we expected 30 or 40 communities to present demands. We didn't think this would turn into much, so we didn't specify the policy much. Um, And really quickly over time, particularly in 1997, um, it was clear that there were kind of a, a pressure building up on this policy. So the bureaucrats over time, and, you know, a lot of times they would say to me, our, our bosses didn't care a whole lot how we were implementing these policies. So we just kind of internally figured out how we were going to organize and, and process these. And so I analyze a bunch of policy documents that, that kind of specify these regulations over time. And what's really interesting is that while the original policy formulation is broad and vague, which means there's a potential for Mapuche communities to access territory through it. And here's so territory, I mean, um, not a specific plot of land, but instead kind of the core of the Mapuche community's um, ancestral territory and claims to that territory. What happens over time is the bureaucracy and the bureaucrats working on this transition it to a really narrow view of land policy. And so they start to put in more and more metrics that kind of limit which communities are able to access which land. So it has to fulfill certain socioeconomic um, metrics, like it has to be enough land to provide for a community. So they start looking at how many hectares per person. Um, So while Previously, you know, if an indigenous community had lost part of the territory that they claim, um, you know, it doesn't matter if that's one hectare or 10. But as the policy started to be specified and, and Konadi, the ministry doing this, 
started to figure out their metrics, they said, no, we want a certain number of hectares per person so that it can support kind of the, the economic development and sustainability of the community. They start to talk about how many families are involved. They started to talk about price per hectare. And so what was once a way, and the, the, the original demand, a way to respond to this um, this loss of of indigenous territory becomes kind of a socioeconomic development program for specific plots of land with specific economic purposes. And so we see that in these policy documents over time, you know, Konali bureaucrats look at this and say, are we being effective? And what do they do? They try to quantify and put these metrics on it, which kind of distances it from, from what Mapuche communities had originally demanded. It's really fascinating. Um, so uh, after that, you kind of move from looking at policy formulation to thinking about implementation. And you look at sort of the implementation of policy processes across different administrations. You discuss what you call land for peace agreements. Uh, can you summarize your findings there? Yeah, so I, I spent a lot of time tracking down different bureaucrats that, that worked on this policy over the 20 years that I was looking at. Um, and like I said, they, they spent a lot of time trying to institutionalize these procedures. Now, what happens, um, lots of Mapuche communities see this policy as a way to access sometimes territory and sometimes land. Um, and so they start to mobilize. Um, they know there aren't a lot of policy procedures around this, and they see some success of some communities um, receiving land or land being purchased for them through this policy. So we start to see kind of these these pressure valves form of, you know, Konali bureaucrats are trying to implement this and Mapuche communities are mobilizing, trying to kind of push their way to pressure politicians and bureaucrats to respond to, to their demands and not other communities' demands or to kind of get it through this policy process. So um, we get this really fascinating dynamic that was a bunch of people referred to over time as um, apagando incendios or putting out fires. Um, and so what, what happens here is a lot of times the, the issue jumps above Konadi, the, the office implementing these. You know, politicians look at the region um, and see these tensions, see Mapuche mobilization. Um, sometimes there are fires, sometimes there are, you know, things that catch national news attention in the ways that activists mobilize. Um, and so other politicians, most often outside of Konadi or kind of above Konadi in, in the government hierarchy, look at this and say, you know, we need to do something. We need to not have um, what's often referred to as the, the Mapuche conflict in the news, especially during political campaigns. And so over time, we kind of get these pressure valves building, building up and higher and higher levels of, of Chilean government kind of make a phone call to Konali and say, we need to put out this fire. Um, and so the, the chapter working um, with the interviews with the bureaucrats kind of shows that over time. So there's these kind of really dramatic quotes from the bureaucrats in Konadi who are doing day to day, where they say, you know, we were trying to order this process, we were trying to, to support communities, implement this, and then we get a phone call. Um, and so they, they talk about kind of 
this land policy being a way to kind of diffuse tension, but also the ways the higher levels of government increasingly kind of use it to, to political ends. And so this idea of kind of putting out fire was was increasingly used as I talked with politicians and bureaucrats as kind of their their approach and their motivation of why they implemented this policy at certain times. So certainly there are exceptions to that that kind of follow through regular policy procedures, but there there are a lot of phone calls that are made for particular communities at particularly important political points in time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, I should mention to listeners that one of the things that make uh, this book such a wonderful read is that there's this wonderful flow to the chapters that each each chapter really builds on the one that comes uh, before it. Uh, and so after that, you know, after looking at policy formulation and then policy implementation, you shift to the uh, Mapuche perspective. Um, so how would you say that Mapuche communities engage with these policies? Yeah, so this was one of the... I mean, all interviews here were really fascinating. Um, it, it was perhaps most fascinating to talk with with community leaders, and and most often I was talking with the president of the the indigenous community in in a part outside of Temuco called um, Padre Las Casas, so about kind of a half hour, forty five minutes outside of the city um, where where I lived most of the time. What was really fascinating was the range of ways that they thought about this policy. So. This is an incredibly technical, long, bureaucratic process with lots of paperwork. Um, and it was so it was really challenging for for communities to work through this. I mean, it's a collective action problem. How do you get a bunch of people to, to say, yes, we are going to work through this, put together all the documentation, communicate with this one office, and then keep that up for years. A lot of times it was a really long process. And so of course, you know, there's turnover in leadership, you know, maybe someone moves to go to a university or a new job or, you know, things change over years. And so it's really hard for communities to kind of sustain work on, on this demand. Um, and so the interviews are with community presidents were fascinating because it allowed me to kind of understand which communities start to present their demands and when and why and how, which ones were never able to. So some communities said it's way too much paperwork. We don't have that documentation. As a community, we're not organized and kind of able to put forth that demand. Um, another very real response I got was it's too expensive and we we can't pay to regularly go into the city to present this paperwork and understand what's what's happening. So I there's eight communities in this that I did interviews with their leaders um, and kind of talked through how did you get through this? And some um, have gotten through the process, some have not. So there's kind of interesting variation. Um, what really stood out to me is the language that they used. So a lot of community presidents talked about how frustrating it was to work with this government office. And so they said a lot of times they don't pay attention to us. They don't have will to work with us. They're not willing to work with us. All that sort of kind of 
we're doing our part, but the government is not responding. Um, and super interesting because I did hear elements of that with some bureaucrats in the offices. Like I remember really vividly one um, one bureaucrat sat down with me and I was asking, you know, when are these when are these folders turned in and what do you do with them and how do you decide which ones you work on? And she goes and pulls open her file cabinet and has tons of folders there, which are all one community's you know, claim through this policy. And she pulls one out and she said, oh, I haven't seen this community in three years, so nothing's happened. Um, and so a lot of community presidents really felt that. They knew, like, if I don't do anything, nothing's going to happen. Um, so some communities were, were there for a range of reasons. Another set of communities um, were willing to push and this gets tricky because there's a lot of there's a lot of risk and a lot of cost and a lot of mobilizing that goes into being able to push. Um, so some presidents talked about the need to mobilize, the need to activate, the need to fight. Um, that language came across really heavy. And so some communities were very active in mobilizing. Like there's a um, an airport right there that some communities would take over the road to the airport or, you know, protest at the airport to try and to try and raise visibility about their demands. So a huge discrepancy between kind of which communities understood how to pressure. Um, and sometimes that pressure was institutional and sometimes it was extra institutional in the forms of, of protest. So there's kind of a really big range of range in ways that presidents Kind of work through this and frustrating because you know as, as political scientists and as someone studying really technical bureaucratic procedures you know we hope those bureaucratic procedures work in a particular way relatively consistently and so to kind of repeatedly hear that that the paperwork was was necessary but insufficient is is frustrating and kind of puts a big risk on a lot of communities Often communities that mobilize face a lot of repression. There's a lot of militarization in the region. Um, and so there are some, some really awful stories about communities that do start to, to mobilize the risks and the costs that they, that they incur because they're choosing to, to mobilize in a particular way. And that comes across, I think, very, uh, very clearly uh, in your writing. Uh, so your final empirical chapter presents some um, statistical evidence about the outcomes of this contestation. Can you tell us about your uh, data set, you know, that you compiled and also your results there? Yes, this was quite the adventure. Um, so pretty early on, I was trying to understand this kind of variation within the policy. And Chile, being pretty technocratic and bureaucratic, had had published the list of which communities had land been purchased for through this process, with the year, with the purchase price, all sorts of stuff. And so there's this, you know, list of these 435 purchases over these 20 years. So that's where kind of this quantitative analysis started with. And in this chapter, I'm really kind of pressing, pressing on the idea that the government only purchases land on behalf of communities that mobilize, and, and particularly more um, what, what right-wing media in Chile would focus on as more violent activism and mobilization. Um, so particularly, these are land takeovers. Um, occasionally, there'll be attacks on property, like in, in a, a guard post or perhaps a piece of equipment that's on the on the piece of land that's, that's being claimed. So I really wanted to kind of quantify and see if I could generalize 
is this narrative that Ponadi is only purchasing for this more radical, violent community? Is that what we're seeing? Um, and so I did a few things. First of all, I think it's really important to point out kind of media biases here and particular communities are associated with this understanding, with this type of Mapuche mobilization, but it's really hard to know how accurate that is or not. And there's been a lot of instances of the state planting information, using informants um, to kind of plant evidence in particular places. So I want to be really clear that, that this one variable that I coded is not a real measure of which communities are using which types of mobilization. Instead, it's how is it being reported in more right-wing media? Um, and so what I did for this first measure to kind of capture which communities are associated with which types of mobilization is I searched through, this took forever, but I searched through El Mercurio, which is one of the, the biggest newspapers in Chile and a particularly right-wing newspaper. So we're reporting more on these instances of violence um, that are sometimes alleged in the media. Um, and when, so that was kind of one measure of mobilization that I looked at. So is that communities associated with more radical and violent types of mobilization, does that impact if that community has a land purchase or not. Um, but recognizing that that's a really problematic measure and just a perception in the media, um, I also went through, there. there's a couple websites that kind of collate a much broader group of, of Mapuche mobilization, um, particularly less, what, what some people would refer to as less violent types of mobilization. So I also searched for all of these communities, how often and when and why were there types of mobilization um, happening in those communities. And so what we get when we kind of look at how do these two measures of mobilization, one kind of media biases of quote unquote more radical communities, and I think that's not necessarily an accurate perception of them, and compared to this much broader kind of collection of instances of mobilization from a broader group of sources. And we get super complicated results. Um, so this narrative that we often hear in Chilean news, um, and it's been repeated a bunch in, in recent conversations and recent presidential elections, there's no clear narrative that Konadi is only purchasing on behalf of communities that engage in more direct um, mobilization strategies. So it's a really complicated narrative of kind of when does mobilization matter and in which cases? What we do find, so I code those two, and then I also put in a bunch of kind of district level variables about vote for the right, percent of forestry land in different districts. And most kind of key takeaway from the quantitative analysis is that land purchases are more likely in districts with a lot of forestry land. Um, you know, the size of this effect is far more than any of the, the mobilization variables that I look at. And so there is a really clear narrative that the more a forestry company has interest in a particular district, the more likely Konadi is to, to purchase land on behalf of a Mapuche community in that district. So we see kind of this protection and prioritization of political and economic elites um, in these districts where, where forestry companies have, have more influence. So if we want to kind of bring it all together, uh, what, what would you say are the implications um, of your analysis for Mapuche communities and for their ability to exercise territorial rights? Um, you know, I thought a lot about this question. Um, 
I think they know this answer. I think the the challenge is is that broader Chilean audiences don't don't hear their answer that they've been providing for a long time. Um, so I think in the conclusion, I talk about kind of what's visible and not visible, um, and the the patterns of policy implementation that I document in the book are incredibly known and understood to Mapuche individuals and communities and activists. They're incredibly aware of the state, you know, putting out fires, of not responding to demands, of kind of planting evidence of repression. Um, I think the real challenge and kind of what I hope, what I hope the change is, is the extent to which broader audiences, Chilean and international audiences, kind of hears and sees those stories as incredibly legitimate and valid. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of, of of racism and classism as some of these stories are communicated saying, you know, oh, well, they didn't know how to turn in their policy documents or, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of gymnastics to avoid hearing the ways in which the state is not implementing this policy according to the standards that that we would hope, you know, a policy is implemented with. So in terms of broader implications, I think I think it's really important, especially as Chile is living through some of the big transitions that it's living through, um, to, to recognize that there is kind of, there's no one pattern of Chilean governance that's kind of strategically implemented at particular places. Um, and unfortunately, uh, kind of a protection of the hegemony of political and economic elites. I think that by and large is a conclusion of the book um, you know, the way that this goal of protecting economic and political interests gets implemented over and over and over through this one policy. Um, so I think it's really important as Chile's kind of reimagining politics and citizenship um, to keep in mind the, the, the variation in how different people experience this and kind of work to, to close some of that variation. Thank you. Now, in the epilogue, you express some cautious optimism about the potential for Chile to move past these governance patterns. I wondered if that's still the way you feel today. Oof, a bit. Um, you know, so so the epilogue was, so I was really close to finishing the book. Um, I think my final deadline to turn in kind of final edits was December of 2019. Um, and those of you that, that follow Chilean politics, October 2019 is when um, the Metro protests started and really quickly escalate into massive mobilization. Um, so you've probably seen the pictures of how many people showed up for, for weeks and for months. Um, and what started as kind of Metro protests turned into a broad critique of, of Chilean governance, of neoliberalism, of Chilean citizenship, of the, the continuation of the 1980 constitution, and turned into this moment of like, let's reimagine what, what governance and citizenship looks like. Um, so I scrambled and wrote to my editor saying like, I, I can't turn this in without addressing, you know, how, what has happened in the last few months. So I, I ended up putting together an epilogue and yeah, there's, there's some cautious optimism there. Um, I think where a lot of that came from, so you know, this book is very specific in its focus. And a lot of people asked me both from academic audiences and friends that I made while I was living in Chile, kind of why, like, 
why do why, why should we care about this? And so, you know, I would have a conversation with them. Um, and as soon as October 2019 happened, a lot of people started saying, you know, they, they would be really proud and say, for the first time, I brought I, I bought a Mapuche flag and took it to the protest. And so they, you know, there was this really dramatic transition in kind of how people heard and understood Mapuche demands as part of this much broader critique of Chilean governance. So we saw a ton of protest signs saying, you know, the Mapuche were telling the truth or Mapuche community, please forgive us. Now, now we see and hear you. Um, we saw a lot of those protest signs. There was also um, a lot of statues that were torn down um, and Mapuche demands were part of this, this broader conversation. So of course that leaves me a bit optimistic. And I think some of that has played out. So, you know, um, Chile is currently working on rewriting the constitution. So there's 155 people that are in the process currently, as I record this in the process, I'm not sure when, when you all will listen to this, but, but as of April, 2022, currently recording or working on rewriting the constitution. And there have been some really exciting proposals for that constitution that have been approved and look like they will be in, in that final draft. Um, also really exciting is some of the language that they're using and some of the representation that's been pulled into that process. So 17 of the 155 people writing the constitution are indigenous representatives. Um, and so some really exciting shifts in kind of the ways of doing governance and the rights that are being written into that new constitution. Now, I think I'm certainly still cautious because we've seen some backlash, right? So the, the, the patterns that I document in the book are not going away and the ways of thinking are not going away. Um, so there's been some concerning rhetoric from some, you know, as exciting as some of the changes are, there's obviously resistance. Um, as this becomes kind of a more national conversation, it's more politicized in particular ways. And so we've seen a lot of critiques of using the word plurinational from a lot of politicians. Um, and we we don't exactly know what's going to happen with this policy process that, that I go through in the book. Um, so I think there's a lot of room to be optimistic and think about the rights and changes that are going to be implemented. Um, but that doesn't address kind of where I started of like that implementation gap. Um, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy left to be done even once hopefully some of these changes to the constitution go through. So a little TBD. Um, and I think important to kind of keep in mind that, that even if we get these exciting changes, what, how people experience them might not be what, what we dream it is. Absolutely. Um, now, I want to emphasize for listeners that we've really only skimmed the surface of what's in the book um, and that you really have to read through it to get uh, a full sense of the sophisticated argument uh, and the and the work that's gone into it. Um, but Kelly, we've taken up a lot of your time. So um, just a final question. Now that this book is done, uh, what are you working on now? I'm trying to sleep a little bit more. It's my first answer. Um, but no, there are a couple <laughs> other answers. Um, so I teach a lot. I've been thinking a lot about, about teaching during the pandemic um, and a lot about faculty labor in teaching during the pandemic. So um, that's kind of one thing that's captured a lot of my attention just because kind of the immediacy of, of what life has looked like. Um, obviously, there is a lot to keep up with in Chilean news and you know changing at a weekly 
weekly, daily pace. Um, one thing that I'm working on, and I'm kind of excited to, to keep thinking through some of the implications of, of what's in the book. Um, one thing I'm working on now is the debates in the upper and lower houses of the legislative branch over establishing those reserved seats in the constitutional convention that I mentioned. Um, so I'm looking at kind of the rhetoric through which politicians support and oppose indigenous representatives. So I think that's a really fascinating place to kind of keep exploring kind of this contestation over what rights are recognized, how, and what language is being used to justify yes or no, let's let's have these indigenous representatives in that, that commission. Um, I'm also doing a lot thinking or starting to think a lot and hopefully doing a lot in the future about playing around with the, the nature of the protests in 2019 and the ways that people kind of articulated demands. So I'm gonna play around with some, hopefully some Twitter data of kind of how people talked through identity and Chilean governance and Chilean citizenship. Um, I'm also kind of nervously waiting for how the new president Boric starts to do some of this land policy implementation. So that's certainly on my mind. And I think it's a bit too early to kind of see what his priorities are in terms of the specific policy implementation. Well, those all sound like great projects. Um, Kelly, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. The book is Kelly Powers, Negotiating Autonomy, Mapuche Territorial Demands and Chilean Land Policy, published by University of Pittsburgh Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.